guys. Welcome back to the Homestead Connection. We are super excited to start recording today. Brenna and Steph and I are going to be talking about canning and preserving today, which of course is completely on par with where we all are at in the season right now and where our gardens are. And so we just have a lot to talk about today, but we just realized prior to sitting down to record that this is our 10th podcast episode. Isn't that insane? So we're super excited about that. It feels like such a massive milestone. We have had the most support from you guys. It's been the best experience. It's been such a learning curve. But when we were reflecting on these last episodes and where we are right now, it's so neat to see the love and the support and the growth that we've had in just 10 weeks. And honestly, we're so excited for what's to come. And I just wanted to take the time and say thank you. We all wanted to take the time and say thank you before we started the podcast episode. We're going to have a giveaway over on our Instagram that will go live on the 2nd of August at noon Central Standard Time. So head on over there if you're listening to this live. Um, And our Instagram handle, of course, is at the Homestead Connection. So anyways, all right, let's talk about some preservation methods. It's something that we can do all year round. I know we talk about it a lot right now with the being summertime and our gardens and everything, but all the things that we want to talk about today are things we can do all year round, which I love. So what have you guys been harvesting lately? What have you guys been harvesting from your gardens and like have an abundance of that you've been preserving? I have weeds. That's all I have. My garden. <laughs> I felt that in my soul. <laughs> my garden has been an epic fail. But to your earlier point, you know, you can you can preserve year round, and you know, and you can do it by buying buying things in bulk. So I look for things on sale, and you know, I look for things that I can buy in bulk, and I preserve that way. Since I evidently have a brown thumb. <laughs> So much of it depends on the year though. And I was doing a really good job with my weeds, like keeping control of all the weeds up until I feel like just the last like four or five weeks. They've had a big, huge home stretch grow. (laughs) Yeah. And with like the intense summer heat that we've been hit with, the weeds have come. That's right. You're like in the hundreds and something crazy, which is just not normal. So many weeds in my garden right now with the heat, just like they're super prolific, but we're also getting a lot of, um, we're getting a ton of green beans and we've gotten a ton of kale and lettuce. And then our tomatoes are finally coming through. I think I've got like three gallon sized freezer bags of tomatoes that I just put away. How do you preserve lettuce? Like that seems like that's an eat a right away kind of thing. What do you do with an abundance of lettuce? Feed it to the goats. So that's not something you, yeah, obviously you can't can it, right? You could freeze dry it, right? I don't have a freeze dryer, but I have a dehydrator and a ton of my kale hit the freeze or hit the dehydrator a couple of weeks ago. Yep. I can see that for the kale, but would that work for lettuce or would it just shrivel up to nothing? Shrivel to nothing, I'm sure. That's what I would think so. Yeah. That's goat food. How's your garden doing stuff? What do you have an abundance of anything yet? Watermelon. That is basically <laughs> all, I mean, okay, I do have corn in my sunflowers, but the watermelon has taken over the rest of the garden. Like my peppers, my tomatoes, <laughs> my basil, like all of it is nothing but watermelon vines going through everywhere. They're coming up the fence. I have watermelons growing through the cattle panel squares on the fence it's ridiculous. So, 
What in the world? Have you ever grown watermelon like that before? Or why? Why Why do you think there's so much watermelon this year? Uh, well, they're planted in the new area that we added in this year. And mm-hmm. I bought four starters because if y'all remember, I didn't start my garden until, what was it? The end of May, beginning of June. Uh, we didn't get anything planted until the, until then. Yeah, I remember that. So I went and just got some watermelon starts. And I had those planted. Well, my husband loves watermelon and he was determined to have as much as possible. So <laughs> he did. <laughs> we planted, <laughs> we planted another, sure. I think I, I limited him to four more by seed. And I said, if they don't come up, they don't come up because I already have four plants going. Well, um, all four seeds sprouted, and so I have eight watermelon plants (laughs) just on one side. And then my daughter wanted two watermelon plants on her side. They're not as crazy, but she started a couple weeks after I did. So, yeah, it's it's everywhere. Ten watermelon plants. Uh huh. Are they at least different varieties, or you got the same thing? Yeah, no, they're all, it's three different varieties, um, and they're all new that I have not grown yet. The last couple of years, I've tried different varieties. Um, Last year was my first time trying to do seedless watermelons, and you have to do, I think you have to do three seedless watermelon seeds with one non-seedless watermelon so that they can get fertilized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was not that successful last year. And this year it's just exploded. Dang. That's cool though. I have one healthy watermelon plant and that's enough watermelon for us. I think I have like nine or 10 watermelon just on that one plant. (laughs) I can't, you're going to have like a hundred melons. Yeah. We, I know for sure there's at least 20 plant like melons out there. Your daughter's going to have to start a little melon stand. Do you do pickled watermelon rind? (laughs) Have you ever done that before? I have not. So I need to get on the ball with figuring out ways to use up and preserve any parts of these melons because it's it's going to be ridiculous. Like, I'm not going to know what to do. We're going to have watermelon for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, you can make watermelon wine. I don't know if, if you partake, but you can make watermelon wine and it's super tasty. And then pickled watermelon rind. So like the green part is mm-hmm. so good. It's so good. It's as good as a relish. I found this. I saw this thing on Instagram. It's dehydrated watermelon rind. And you basically like take the watermelon rinds and you soak it in salt water to like suck some of the moisture out of it. And then you put it into a sugar water bath to hydrate it with sugar water. And then you put it in your dehydrator coated in sugar for like 24 hours or something like that. And it turns into like a watermelon chewy gummy type candy. It looked really good. And I'm willing to try it. It sounds kind of a little bit labor intensive, but if like if you had an excess of the rinds, I mean, it would be fun just to try. It's you've got the time, and it wouldn't even be expensive. It'd just be a little labor intensive. Well, yeah, I mean, most of it's waiting, right? Because you have to take it from one water to the other water, and then toss it in sugar, and then toss it in the dehydrator. So it's more time. It's more just waiting than it is actually having to do anything. I would love to try that. That would be so cool. 
What are your guys' favorite ways to preserve your harvest? And not just harvest, but like what's your guys' favorite way to preserve stuff? Like whether it's with your garden or if you find bulk of something in the grocery store for a good price. I mostly dehydrate because that's where I'm comfortable. Um, so I mostly dehydrate and I have a ton of Mylar bags. Like my whole pantry is Mylar bags. Um, but I do a lot of water bath canning as well for anything that's able to be water bath canned because I'm just now dipping my toe into pressure canning. Like I have all the accoutrement that is needed for pressure canning, but I, I yeah, I just haven't actually done it yet. Um, so I'm hoping to develop that skill and kind of hone it, you know, this year and then yeah. eat the stuff over time and yeah. And then do more of it next year as my garden improves. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> Pressure canning is a huge step. I feel like I started in on that last year and this year I'm really trying to like really grasp onto it because the more comfortable I get with it, the more I realize that pressure canning is endless. Like the things that we can pressure can and the ways we can preserve food by pressure canning truly ends up being endless. And it's kind of empowering. I was really afraid of pressure canning at first, but this year I'm starting to feel a little bit of empowerment and control over the way I take, like take on and preserve my food, which has been like kind of a, a neat feeling. Yeah. It's nice from a confidence perspective and something else that, um, I do. And that's also somewhat of a confidence builder is a lot of fermenting. So sauerkraut, you know what I mean? Pick, um, pickled, uh, green beans, um, you know, anything that's like that where you can kind of, and you still need to can the pickles, but just the act of fermenting and, and kind of getting everything shelf stable that way has been pretty interesting too. Yeah. It's so. huge. Steph, what are your go-to ways when you preserve food? So for the last, up until like the last three or four years, um, it's really just been freezing. Um, but I have since found a love for canning. So my goal is to can as much as possible um, because A, that's going to save on freezer space and B, in the case of electricity going out for days on end i don't have to worry about my meat thawing out and rotting or whatever i have in the freezer going bad so um i love canning um mylar bagging i am just starting to get into and i don't have a dehydrator that is on my birth miss list for this year birthday and christmas you know Mm I got it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's on my, my wish list for this year. So hydrating, but it's definitely, I don't know. It takes up space. I think the reason why I like canning and it's interesting to me is that like the, the stuff that you have to use it is pretty simple. And then to your point, you don't have to freeze and you don't have to take up any like freezer space or, I mean, my pantry is literally in my basement and shelves and you know, it just, it stacks really nicely. Yeah. I want a freeze dryer, Same. but those things are expensive. Absolutely. Same. $3,000. looks mm-hmm. like some sort of something that would be in a spaceship. I don't know. Yeah. I, I like the idea of being able to freeze dry just from the sake of like, especially for like long-term preservation and prepping and all of those things. But the practicality of a freeze dryer for our family is pretty low at this point. I think that if we had like a really big family or we're trying to feed a lot of people or we're really intent on um, like prepping for crisis, that maybe it would make Mm -hmm. more sense. Or people who have freeze dryers really seem to have 
their like freeze dried candy business on the side too, because that's such a popular thing, which I think is cool. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, but they are huge. And any appliance just takes up space. So I try to limit it to the things that end up being the most valuable or making the most sense for our, our family. But, um, yeah, freeze dryers are huge. They're kind of fascinating, but you're almost better off if you're doing the prepping thing. I mean, you don't get to control the ingredients the same way, which is a big benefit of having your own freeze dryer, but you're almost better off going to like some of those companies that, that do it as a business. And then you can spend a couple hundred bucks and get a couple of years worth of, or not years, but a couple of months of, uh, of product, you know, and you're, it's, it's expensive, but it's not as expensive as a $3,000 freeze dryer. (laughs) So. So yeah, let's talk through the, the different ways that we like to preserve our food. So canning is the big one. Everybody knows about canning. We see it on Instagram. Your grandma used to can, maybe your mom used to can, um, but we all are familiar with canning. So there's two different types of canning, water bath canning, and there's pressure canning. I do both, but I'm new to pressure canning, like I mentioned earlier. There's also steam canning, but I've never done that. I don't know. I just I just learned about it recently, so I don't I don't know a whole lot about it. But there's also steam canning. I saw someone steam can on Instagram, and I believe that the guidelines are similar to water bath canning, um, in that it has to be a high acidity or a low acidity food before you can steam can it. But the idea is that you're still cooking it under pressure, but with steam versus actually under the full water bath. Oh. The way the lid locks on is a little bit different. Um, whereas with water bathing, you know, you're putting the the water the, the jar actually in the water and then covering the lid to help create that like vacuum seal, the pressure mm-hmm. and the seal. But with the steam canning, you're putting it in just a small amount of water and then the lid kind of locks on a little bit and then you're creating the pressure with steam so that it seals that way. Yeah, I just did it. I just went to almighty Google. It uses less water and heats up faster than water bath canning. Which that's a good point because honestly, when I'm using my big canner, sometimes I'll use my stock pot to water bath can if I'm doing a smaller amount or just pint-sized jars. But anytime I get over a larger than a pint-sized jar, I have to bring out my water bath canner. And that takes such a long time to heat up on my stove. It really can take, sometimes it takes up to an hour almost, I feel like, to actually get boiling yeah, it does take a lot of time. That's interesting because I, you know, I just went to Almighty Google and it says that <clears throat> steam canning is a more efficient, environmentally friendly option. That is interesting. I'm gonna have to look into that. Not that I need another <laughs> need another appliance because that's another thing with canning. Like you could get if you wanted to be able to do pressure canning and water bath canning, you could get just a pressure canner and you can water bath can in that and you can pressure can in it. So if you're wanting to get into that, you only need the one. So you're not having to have two huge pots taking up space in your kitchen or closet or whatever it is. See, I've never had a water bath canner. I've always just used my stock pot or I've used my pressure canner and I just removed the weight, you know, and so it's, it, it's nothing. So um, yeah, yeah, that's a good call. It definitely would save space if you, especially if you're, you're limited on cabinet space, which I definitely am, especially right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And hindsight's totally 50, 50, because knowing that now, now that I have a couple of years of experience under my belt, if I could go back three years, I would have just gotten the pressure canner for that reason. 
Yeah, the only thing with that, especially if you're just using a stock pot, is making sure that you either put like extra rings down on the bottom or have a, a towel or something just so that your jars aren't sitting on the very bottom of the pan. Yeah, yeah, because they'll like explode or crack or whatever, right? One of the things with water bath canning that I used to be really impatient about was checking seals on the lids. They say you want to hear them pop and ping and stuff to know that they're sealed. A lot of times when I was first learning to water bath can, I would go and like push down on the lid to see if there was any seal there or not, or if it was still like, um, what's would like go concave or whatever, like snap. And I had some issues with my seals lasting when I did that in my earlier years of water bath canning, where I feel like messing with those seals instead of just being patient and letting them, you know, seal on their own as the jar cooled off. Um, I like created the issue by messing with them and I had failed seals a handful of times, more than a handful of times. And I'm like 90% sure it's because I messed with them when I shouldn't have. It's so exciting though. You just can't help it. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like honestly, that's how a lot of people like even if they do let it set, I feel like that's how a lot of people check their seals to see mm-hmm. if they've popped or not. When in reality, you could there's a couple different ways. You could tap it with an like a butter knife to like hear the sound difference. Or I like to just take my rings off and then grab the jar where the lid sits on there and lift it up. And if it comes off, then it didn't seal. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but if you can pick the jar up by just holding the lid, then you know you have a good seal. That's what I do too now, Steph. I don't push on the lids anymore. I will just let them sit for however long and then check, like, you know, take the ring off and then check to see if I can lift it up from the, the top to make sure there's a good seal. Mm-hmm. The foods that you should be water bath canning are foods that are high in acidity. So things like fruit or tomatoes. Um, or things that are high in acidity and also high sugar content. When it comes to things that are very low acidity, like green beans or carrots or potatoes or meat, those are the types of things that should be water bath cans. And you can still water bath can things that are high in acidity, um, but you can't water bath can things that are low in acidity. So earlier when we were talking about Oh, we would just buy a pressure canner instead of a water bath canner and a pressure canner. If you're going to learn one type of canning, I know a lot of people start with water bath canning because it seems a little bit easier and it's a little bit more straightforward and there's like less variables. But at the same time, if you water bath canning ends up being the option that ends up being the most efficient and the most valuable when it comes to food preservation because you can pressure can absolutely anything. Right. You can't, you can't water bath can meat, right? You have to pressure can meat because meat is right. Isn't that right? Meat has to be pressure canned. Yes. Yes. Okay. Technically there's a lot of, there's so yes, the NCHFP guidelines say pressure canning meat is the only safe way to preserve meat in a jar. But there's other people out there like the Amish who have ways of water bath canning meat, mm-hmm. which I've never tried and frankly wouldn't recommend. But there's people out there who have been water bath canning meat before for years and decades, but it's not recommended as the safest way to do that. Yeah, there's a whole rabbit trail right. of rebel canning, things that you're not supposed to can as far as the USDA goes, but yeah. If you follow their guidelines, you have to pressure can anything that is low in acidity. 
Which, I mean, it makes sense, right? So because when you're pressure canning, you're raising the pressure, the you're raising the boiling point of the of whatever the the meat or the water or whatever and so you're cooking that food more in there and so it makes sense to me just if you're like afraid of bacteria and and whatnot that it would make sense to raise that temperature higher so that you're getting that meat hotter and any bacteria is cooked out of it right i mean exactly because the type of bacteria that you can have in food that's low in acidity is a lot different than the bacteria that you can have in food that's high in acidity and in order to kill that bacteria off you have to pressurize it at a higher pressure than what's boiling point right 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 so it makes sense you know i mean i, I the amish have been doing their thing for centuries right so i definitely feel like they know what they're doing but i'm not Amish and have not done it. <laughs> so my confidence is not there. <laughs> no, totally. It's de That's definitely not something I'm comfortable crossing over into, at least right now. But I admire people who are willing to try it out. It feels like too big of a risk for my family though. Yeah, agreed. One of my favorite ways for preserving food is freezing. I freeze so much stuff. I feel like my default way of preserving food in a pinch is freezing. So to, like tomatoes, our tomato harvest is just coming in right now. And I've been putting all of my tomatoes in freezer bags and just putting them straight in the freezer because I don't have the time to actually go through and like, you know, slice them and boil them and process them and make them into, I really, what I'm planning on doing is making a bunch of tomato sauce this year. Um, just as, just a store. I'm not going to do a whole bunch of stuff with tomatoes except for marinara sauce, but I haven't had the time. So they're just being thrown straight into the freezer. Same with like berries and other things. Um, do you guys do a bunch of freezing? Oh, for sure. Mostly though, it's, um, it's meats. It's not so much vegetables, but again, my, my garden is not doing very well right now. Do you have to roast? Like what if you roasted the tomatoes and then froze them? Or would you just roast them afterward? Like if you wanted that roasted kind of taste, would you be able to roast tomatoes and then freeze them? I imagine you just, yeah, literally just roast them and then let them cool and then put them in the freezer. I have most of my tomatoes that are in the freezer are not even washed. <laughs> They're like straight from the garden into the freezer. <laughs> I like doing that though, because then as they thaw, so when you're <laughs> going to make tomato sauce, you know, you have to blanch them or you have to, um, yeah, you have to blanch them first. Essentially, you slice the tomato skin, blanch them in hot water, and then the the skin will kind of peel off. But when you freeze them first, the yep. skin just slides right off of them without having to go through the whole blanching process as they thaw. Um, oh, nice. Which is convenient in my opinion because I it just removes kind of one extra step. Especially like early in the season when you're only getting like a handful of tomatoes at a time you can freeze them as they start coming in. And then when the gardening season comes down, <laughs> you can then start processing everything, skipping the blanching stuff and then go on from there. Yeah. Blanching is like my least favorite part about freezing. And I learned the hard way last year with a bunch of my green beans, I decided to freeze them without blanching them first. And they were so mushy when I pulled them out of the freezer. So I had pulled them out of the freezer, thawed them to use them like you would, you know, frozen green beans. And they were just soggy, mushy, slimy. I was so disappointed. I was like, no, I'll never do that again. And now this year I'm just canning all of my green beans. I'm not pressure. I'm not freezing a single green bean. They're all getting canned because I don't want to deal so with it. 
slimy green beans. No, slimy green beans sound horrible. But what does blanching actually do? Because I don't think I've ever blanched anything. But like I said, the only thing I do is I freeze my chickens. I was going to ask so. the exact same question, Brenna. Let me look oh, on cool. Google because I think I know, but I'm not 100% sure. Blanching is scalding vegetables in boiling water or steaming it for a short time and is typically followed by quick, thorough cooling in very cold or ice water because it stops the enzyme actions with otherwise cause loss of flavor, color, and texture. And yeah, it does make the difference. But what? why is it not i mean I, I guess maybe i'm getting too like intense in it but i wonder what makes it stop things from being mushy because i would feel like that is it because of the extreme change in temperature maybe. it says this quick thing says blanching stops primary enzyme activity which leads to the loss of flavor uh, which leads to the cause of loss of flavor color texture interesting in the flesh of the produce huh so yeah, so uh, Brenna, you asked like, what is blanching and why do you blanch? So basically when you want to blanch something, so you're going to blanch like a vegetable and you don't have to blanch everything, but um, like berries, I you know, you don't want to blanch berries if you're going to put those into the freezer. You, you don't have to blanch your tomatoes like we were just talking about, but common things that go in the freezer from my garden are, well, green beans last year, which I learned the hard way about that, but then corn, you want to blanch among other things. And basically you take the corn or the green bean and you put it in boiling water or steaming hot water for a short amount of time, two, three minutes. Like it's really not that long. You're just like flash boiling it and then putting it into ice cold water or an ice bag to like flash cool it. And by doing that, it stops the enzyme process of the, basically the fruit or the vegetable breaking down. So it's going to keep its color and its texture and its flavor a lot better than if you just like put it into the freezer. And like I said, I didn't think I had to do that last year with green beans. And when I pulled those green beans out, they were like the green, the green had turned to yellow almost as they were thawing. They were very mushy. They had, they just did not taste well at all. There was absolutely no like um, structure to them anymore. Mm-hmm. They were just nasty. So this one says bell peppers too. That's kind of interesting because bell peppers are great frozen. They're so easy, you know, sorry. So easy. And that actually reminds me, I have like six or eight bell peppers that I need to put in the freezer here in the next couple of days so that they don't go bad. Well, there you go. Make sure to blanch them. I want to, I have a, I'm processing a lot of corn this year. So sweet corn is something our family loves. But sweet corn season is such a short season, so you can only enjoy it for a split second in the summertime. So we're enjoying it, of course, fresh with dinners, but I've been freezing a bunch and I'm in a can a bunch as well. And corn is definitely one of those ones that you want to blanch first. So put in that scalding water, put it in the the ice bath um, before you freeze it. That Otherwise, if you don't do that, your corn will absolutely turn into mush. So do you do that on the cob? Well, so I don't freeze my corn on the cob. I know there's a lot of people who will portion off the corn on the cob and then put it in the freezer, like existing on the cob still. I end up steaming my corn in like a stock pot. I just will steam like, I don't know, six, eight, 10 ears of corn at a time, pull them out, let them cool. And then I cut them off the cob. And then I've been partitioning them off into two cup sections, like two cups in each bag and then putting them in the freezer. Gotcha. It two cups for me is a super nice amount because 
it's a, it's an easy amount to pull out for dinner. It's just like warm up for dinner with like, you know, butter and salt. But it's also the perfect amount for our family to throw in shepherd's pie or into chili or soup or something like that. Last year I did freezing. I froze quite a bit of corn, not as much as this year, but it put some. And one cup amounts is what I froze last year. And it was not enough by a long shot. I was pulling out two packages at a time. So this year I'm doing a minimum of two cups and it, it seems like it'll be a lot better. Which that's closer to the size of like a canned corn in the store. Cause it's like what, 14, yes. 15 ounces. Yeah. I think, yeah. Like 12, 12, 14 ounces or 16 ounces. I honestly, I don't know, but that's <laughs> what it feels like when I'm looking at the quantity. It's like that. It looks more consistent with what you'd like open from a can of corn or something like that. I dehydrated corn one time. I thought it would be kind so. of fun to try and reconstitute it for uh, soups. I haven't done it yet, so I'll let you know what happens. Right now, it's all just sitting in Mylar bags. <laughs> it sounds disgusting. <laughs> well, have yeah. you ever gotten those, like, they come in, like, jars or they come in bags and it's got the noodles and it's got the peas and everything's dehydrated and then you take it and you throw it in. Yes. And it makes, that's what I figured it was going to be, but without like any of the preservatives or anything. So it doesn't look super pretty, but it's it's just little corn kernels. And I figured it'd be kind of cute in the soup. And I always love those things. So chicken noodle soup. You should probably mm-hmm. try that soon just yeah. to make sure. I mean, it makes sense. I totally see where your logic is at. I'm curious to hear about, I mean, it's no different. I feel like than dehydrating peas right. or something like that. I did green beans too. So I was going to do both of them and see what happens. I'll let you know. Actually, I have them downstairs. I'll, I'll run a test this weekend and let you know. I have a dehydrator. I purchased a dehydrator this year in prep for this harvest season. I really wanted one last year, but I didn't bite the bullet. And this year I purchased a dehydrator. It's not super expensive. It wasn't super expensive, but it's been really nice. It's 10 trays and I've done just things like herbs and kale. Initially I dehydrated the kale with the idea of doing kale chips. You know how you'll see, you know, you know, marketed kale chips and stuff. And they're okay. And I I don't mind them. I don't crave them, but I ended up, I ended up, um, nobody craves kale by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I ended up dehydrating a bunch, a bunch of kale because I've just had such an abundance of it. And I pulverized it into powder, just like literal fine powder with the idea that now I can add it, you know, a couple tablespoons into, chili or spaghetti or meatloaf or a soup or something like that as a nutritional boost for me and the kids. And also as a way of just using, I mean, I dehydrated cups and cups and cups and cups of kale. And it, it, I have two quart size Mason jars now full of kale powder. Just sneak it into all the kids food. That's hilarious. Yes. You know, the, I sneak other things into their food too. I sneak, I like to sneak squash and sweet potatoes into our food a lot too. My, my family never knows. Yeah, it's good probably for what's that? The, the, what makes it orange? Like what helps your eyes? What's that stuff called? Keratin. Keratin. That's it. Yeah, yeah. it's probably good for their mm-hmm. eyes. Um, you know what the who the biggest uh, purchaser of kale was for a long time? It no. was like I think it's Applebee's, and it was their decoration for their salad bar. <laughs> Oh my goodness, what? Yeah, I might have the I might have the restaurant wrong. Now as soon as I said I was like, I should not say this, but I think it was Applebee's. And you know like how like on the salad bar they had all like the greenery and stuff? 
Yeah. Yep. Google me. Double check me. Of course, Americans would buy one of the most nutrient dense leafy greens to use as decoration. Applebee's has a salad bar. Yep. <laughs> I think like a long time ago, back when I was like a kid, they did. Hold on. Now I gotta go look it up. Hold on. Uh, I'm googling too. Another thing. Well, I don't know that you could. But with your kelp powder, could you add that in with like chicken feed and stuff in the winter or like with your goats? Oh, that's a good idea. Actually, Steph, I hadn't thought about that. And it's I'm kind of glad that you said that because I'm going to look into it. I have so much kale. Basically, this is the first year that I grew kale. Um, Like I tried to start some kale last year and I think I got a couple plants and it was fine and good. But this year I really wanted to plant a couple of different kinds of kale because when you pick it fresh from the garden, it's not like the stuff you get from the grocery store. The stuff from the grocery store is so dense and woody and stiff. When you grow it. Woody and dense and stiff. (laughs) I was going to be the mature one there. (laughs) That should be on our next mugs. <laughs> we need that on a t-shirt with a piece of kale. I want that on a sticker. <laughs> oh, goodness. I want that on a sticker, too. But with a piece of kale. Oh. it's it's like that word catchphrase it's like you're describing three words and you have to just guess what it is woody dense and stiff okay i got the restaurant i was wrong it's not applebee's it's even stranger pizza hut it was pizza hut pizza interesting i do salad bar i do remember pizza hut having their salad bar and their like pizza buffet basically but anyways, I grew a ton of kale this year, yep. or I, I started a bunch of kale this year because I yes. wanted some in the garden just to enjoy it as a salad. And all of my kale starts like started and did amazing. So now I have so much kale in my garden. I think I have 15 kale plants in my garden and I'm, I'm trying to like kind of figure out what I want to do with them. I hate to just pull them up because they're still producing so well but yeah giving them to the goats is a really good idea especially dehydrating them and saving them for like the goats or the chickens in the winter we slip in kale powder to everybody (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i also really want to dehydrate fruit though so that's i haven't there's a lot of things that i want to do but i'm trying to work with what's coming from my garden right now so canning what i can freezing what I can, dehydrating what I can. But there's a lot of things that kind of as the garden slows down that I want to either pull out of the freezer and dehydrate or can. Or if I can get it in abundance from the grocery store and preserve it for my family, I'm happy to do that too. But I really want to um, dehydrate a bunch of fruit as well. You know what's good, and I was so surprised, is applesauce. I is it? Laid. it is so good. It makes a fruit roll up. I swear. And nothing. You don't need to add anything to it. Just mm. applesauce in a about a quarter inch thick like layer. Really uh, thin. Obviously, you don't want the grate. You want like those silicone uh, trays mm-hmm. that go on top of them. Right. I I love it. I could. I love it. The kids love it. It is so good. And it's nothing but applesauce that's just been dehydrated down. And they're easy to travel and they store well. You could probably stick them in a mylar bag. Um, mm-hmm. mine don't last that long, but I love canning. I mean, I'm sorry. I love dehydrating, uh, applesauce. You can That's do that with any puree. Have... 
when I purchased my dehydrator, I also got some of the accessory bits with it. And that included some of those mats to do things like the, um, like fruit roll-up style things, yeah. which that I should do that. I really should do that. That's such a good idea. So easy. And you can find applesauce, like organic applesauce on sale sometimes, like in the big, huge jugs and you just dump the whole thing mm -hmm. out and, mm -hmm. and the kit, mm -hmm. it's easy to travel with. Um, I also dehydrate tomatoes, believe it or not, because it makes them like sun-dried tomatoes basically. Yeah, so definitely. They're really good too. That's a good idea too, to do that with, with a, with a number of tomatoes, mm -hmm. just as another way to preserve them. I hadn't even thought about that. I think some people take them and stick them in oil afterwards, like olive oil, and then you can have like right. this on, you know what I mean? So yeah. It's an infusion. Mm -hmm. hmm, that's a good idea. So, I mean, you could go even further to save room in your Mylar bags with that after you've dehydrated them and you could just pulverize them and make a tomato powder. Mm-hmm. Stick it in everything with the kale stuff. <laughs> well, it depends on how dry you can get them, though, because that's the thing about the dehydrator. It's like there's still some moisture left in a lot of things in the dehydrator. It's just you're dehydrating it to a point where it can be shelf stable. That's the difference between dehydrating and freeze drying, though, because with freeze drying, you're literally sucking out like 90 plus percent of that moisture so that it can be pulverized down. But with some things like you will just like, you know, grapes like how they turn into raisins, there's still mm -hmm. that moisture content. Or if you think of a sun-dried tomato, it's super, you know, shriveled down, but there's still moisture content in it. I think it'd be more like freeze drying something that, to pulverize it, to put it in the Mylar bags. Yeah, you have to cut your tomatoes really thin, I would think, you know, I mean, there is a point, but you'd have to cut it so thin. I don't know that it's worth it, worth it. Mm -hmm. but you can try. Somebody, somebody did, I feel like somebody we know did pulverize tomatoes and I can't think of who it was, but they may have freeze dried them first. I'm not sure. I'm fascinated by freeze drying videos on Instagram, but I have no desire to purchase a freeze dryer. I just oh, I don't have the space for it. And I don't like, I mean, I said this earlier, but I just don't know how it would really actually serve to benefit our family besides, you know, quenching a curiosity. Prepping. I mean, it would be because I don't know the stuff that's in my that's in those packages that I got from like all of my different prepping companies. It's, you know, I'm sure those preservatives and stuff. So it would be kind of nice to be able to do my own and then put them in Mylar bags. And then you basically have your own MREs. You're you're you got everything that you need. So but it's yeah. they're about three grand. So I would have to figure out how to do some other kind of business. And I've tried the freeze dried candy. It's really tasty, but I don't know necessarily that I want to freeze dry a bunch of Skittles. You know what I mean? <laughs> My kids want me to freeze dry a bunch of Skittles. Yeah. Yeah. They're good. But we don't really do Skittles in our house, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of um, dye. I would be interested to hear you guys talk a little bit about Mylar bagging. So I do Mylar bags. I have, like, I enjoy like preserving with mylar bags. I don't have, it's not something that I've done a whole lot of. I don't prep the way that Brenna, you've prepped, but it's something I'm working towards and a little bit more conscious of these days as I'm like putting stuff away and buying groceries or preserving stuff, like putting stuff away, away and like as a prep prepping style. But a lot of that prepping work and preserving food can be done in mylar bags. And I would just be interested to hear you guys talk about that a little bit more. Also, I need to go close up my chickens. I guess we're getting like 80 mile an hour winds and they just picked up. Go, go, go. 
Well, you guys, you're not going to believe what happened, but in the middle of recording, my power went out because a storm blew in and I lost internet connection. So we've recorded this podcast now over the course of two days. And so what you're listening to right now is an entirely separate day from what you were listening to just a couple of seconds ago. So picking up where we left off. Picking up where we left off. <laughs> We left off at mylar bagging. I, I would really, I don't have a lot of experience with mylar bagging. I have some, it's it's something I've just, just tiptoed into this year. So I've got kind of my pantry staples mylar bagged for a short period of time, but it's not something I've taken very seriously or done in a lot of like abundance. And I know that Brenna, you take prepping and storing food pretty seriously to like a level that I haven't reached yet. Um, but I would just be interested to hear your guys' experience and what you guys have done with Mylar bagging. Yeah, I think Stephanie and I kind of like race neck and neck for the, the preparation for any kind of like apocalyptic <laughs> actions, you know, or even just as much as, you know, the power going out or ex exactly what you experienced, you know, um, coming from Florida and having to go days and days without electricity or air conditioning or any, anything, any creature comfort, you kind of learn very quickly how to make sure that you have water and at least the staples to, to you know, to sustain yourself uh, throughout the duration of the the storm and whatever else comes afterwards, the infrastructure being rebuilt. So um, yeah, mylar bagging's cool. And I think it's cool, at least from my point of view, I'd be curious to hear Stephanie's <clears throat> because I, I mylar bag things that I buy in bulk. Um, my carrots did not do well this year and neither did my potatoes. Um, <laughs> they're, they're hilarious. So they're cute, very, though. very small. Um, but I, <laughs> They're so stinking cute. They I know. They look Barbies. <laughs> They're, They're just so, so small. I know. And I'll share pictures because I've actually been having a really good time with them and with my little, my little itty bitty uh, potatoes that are like <laughs> the size of a quarter. Um, but, uh, but those, so, okay. So I didn't do great with those, but I can buy a 24, 25 pound bag of flour from Azure and no problem, you know, bag it up into like 10 cup increments and it keeps for 25 years. Um, as long as you get the sealer, which is pretty cheap, you know, like they, they, it keeps for a really long time. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's basically what I do. I have, um, actually, you know what? It's on our resource page on our website now that I just think about it. And there, it's called, oh, Stephanie, what's it called? Is it easy calculation? What's that calculation thing? Do you remember it? You um, gave it to me. Easy prepping? Is that what it is? Oh, I know what you're talking about. I don't easy think it's prep. Is it something yeah, like it's that? Easy, easy prepping. prepping. The letter E, the letter Z, and then prepping. Echo Zulu prepping.com. Um, so anyway, that's what I did. I went to that and I put in what I needed. And I mean, candidly, I've just been buying one thing every single time I get a drop from Azure or Costco or whatever. And that's what I've been working through. The so. stuff that I have prepped is and like Mylar bagged up is legitimately things that my family already eats. So any type of storage that I've done are foods that are already in our regular rotation and i've kind of just extended that out this year into mylar bagging so rice that we eat flour that we use a couple different types of beans that i'll cook on a rare occasion but i don't have a lot of things like 
prepped that just our foods my family never eats. And I think that's one of the reasons why I haven't gone gone so gung-ho with mylar bag prepping is because some of the things that we eat regularly, I can't just quickly or easily throw into mylar bags. Um, and I just have this mental block when it comes to storing stuff that I don't know if we'll ever eat, like pounds and pounds and pounds of split peas or lentils or, you know, whatever. That's a good point. I mean, I eat lentils, so they, they, you know, they will get used in my house. I eat rice. It'll get used in my house. But yeah, I don't think you should, I think you should store what your family eats and in whatever best way that is personally. One of the things I see a lot of on Instagram and it's, you know, we've already talked about freeze drying and how we do not do that. Like the three of us don't, but a lot of people who use freeze dryers and freeze dry their foods end up storing it in mylar bags because it's just the ultimate food preservation, just decades that you can keep these foods, you know, fresh essentially. Yeah. It's a, um, you're basically then at that point making MREs. You're, ba- you know, all you would need to do is throw it in boiling water, depending on what it is. And then, you know, you've got, you've got your food, which is, I buy that stuff pre-made cause I haven't gotten a freeze dryer yet, but they're pretty cool. What I like to do is I will buy bulk spices and then I will mylar bag and little itty bitty mm-hmm. mylar bags. <laughs> it's a bit redundant, but I'll do that. And then I have bulk spices. I do like cayenne and uh, paprika and spices that I'll use and then I'll get a better deal on buying bulk. And then I can just mylar bag that up and you'll use them eventually. You might not ever for the rest of your mm-hmm. your life need cayenne pepper again, but mm-hmm. you know, you can just put that in your will to your favorite child whenever, you know, it comes time. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, like baking soda, baking powder, sugar, salt, a lot of those types of things. Mylar bagged up yeah. because we do so much baking in our home. Um, So those are some of those things that I've used some of those smaller bags for, and I'm glad I have those tucked away. Steph, do you, you mylar bag quite a bit too, don't you? Um, I just started getting into it. So not a whole lot, um, more so like you where I'm doing more of like just pantry staples. Um, I want to get more into doing like making my own pre-mixes and then mylar bagging those for like pancakes, waffles, that kind of stuff. Um, Yep. And Brenna, you mentioned the sealer thing. So do you have like the, the actual sealer or do you use your hair straightener or what do you use? You can use your hair straightener, but I use, I bought a sealer off of Amazon, believe it or not for 18 bucks and it works great. Oh wow. Yeah. So I just have that and it's, you know, I chomp it down and it seals and then I move on to the next bag. It it probably worked the same with my hair straightener, but candidly, I don't know where that is. <laughs> I bought, so I think a lot of us are familiar with Wallaby Goods and there's a yeah. lot of companies out there that have Mylar bags. I bought a, a kit or a set of like a starter kit, starter set situation from Wallaby Goods. I believe during Black Friday sales last year and I bought their heat sealer because it was on, I think it's $40 full price. I might be speaking out of turn, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was um, or it is full price, but it was on a pretty decent sale and I really like having it. It just, it's made it a lot easy. Like it's made it very easy because it's cut or it's built to the specifications of their bags basically. And then it's got the heat knob. So it tells you, 
you know, how high you're going to turn it for what weight of bag and how long to hold it. And like you leave it until the light goes off. Like it's very foolproof, which I liked just kind of step like dipping my toes in the end of last year with the whole Mylar bag stuff. And because I got it on sale, it was nice. Otherwise I probably would have just used my straighteners or bought a cheap straightener or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I didn't buy the Wallaby one is because I think it was really expensive, but that's a good, that's a good tip. I didn't even think about, about waiting for Black Friday and seeing if they had any deals that way. They run a great special uh, on their bags. Yeah. I've got way too many bags now, but they, so that's great. I have a list. I keep a list of things that I want to purchase that are on kind of a short list of things I want to purchase so that when seasonal sales come up, whether it's like Memorial Day or Black Friday or, you know, after Christmas, Cyber Mondays, whatever, then I can know, okay, what was I going to get and or keep my eye on something to make sure the price is actually worth it and this and that. I don't know. And Mylar Bags was one of those ones where uh, I knew I was going to be able to get them for a better deal. So I was willing to hang out and hold out for the deal. That's a great idea. That's what I do. Yeah, I do that too. And I keep like the price of what it is normally. So you can tell if you're actually getting a deal. <laughs> so my um, so cool. my bread maker, I've had my bread maker that I currently have for over a year now. And I got it during one of Amazon's cyber sales, like their semi-annual sale or something like that. And I had my eye on the the bread maker that I wanted and it was $129.95 full price and the week before the black their semi-annual sale they jacked the price up $50 and then they decreased the price again down to $129.95 I was so annoyed I ended up wow. buying it at the $129.95 just because I knew that's what I wanted and whatever but it, to keep your eye out on prices is a good idea because sales never are the way they seem pricers are tricky tricky creatures <laughs> mm -hmm. um the funny thing about mylar bagging because you mentioned mixes and one of the things that i love about it and i don't use a whole lot of pre-made mix but if you've got a brownie mix you just love i'm just using brownie mix as an example because i have that right now <laughs> you can just dump it into a mylar bag like it you can make it as homemade homegrown homestead as you want or you can cheat and just buy the stuff on sale and dump it in a bag and all of a sudden you've extended the the life of the product so i just think it's a mm -hmm. it's really versatile for those of us who maybe are not fully into making our own mixes yet though i will say that's something to explore because it's ridiculously easy but if you're still just into the betty crocker or whatever it is that you're into buying you know like you can still mylar bag that too which is kind of nice it's nice you bring up brownie mixes because my mother-in-law actually found a brownie mix, like a, like a actual from scratch recipe that she made that we all really liked. And she ended up making it in bulk, the dry ingredients in bulk, and then wrote down, you know, add in this many eggs and this much oil and this much water and bake for however long. And I, I'm going to be doing a lot of mylar bagging and doing some pre-mix stuff this fall and winter. Once we get out of this hectic season with gardens and harvesting and growing chickens and stuff. But, um, that's it's a really good pre-mix brownie or like a really good from scratch brownie mix recipe that I can share on the website too. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I have a brownie mix. Ooh, we should trade brownie mix recipes. I have one that has cayenne pepper in it. They're spicy brownies. Oh, they're so good. Oh. They're I not, do not oh, you like don't like spicy, spicy chocolate. chocolate. Okay, <laughs> yeah, you have to like spicy chocolate, but it they are so good. 
No. With all those Mexican the hot Mayans, chocolates, man. you know, mm -mm, no thanks. Oh, so good. No bueno. So what's, what are some ways or where would you recommend? Yeah. Where would you recommend people start preserving if they're kind of new to taking preservation seriously? I mean, obviously freezing's the easiest, but for me, canning is the most convenient because yeah. it's almost like you're meal prepping in a sense because everything's already cooked once you have it done and processed and on the shelf you just have to warm it up so for me especially and i'm sure brenda as well working full-time well you too kylie yeah working full-time you get off work it's time to make dinner you don't want to be in the kitchen for an hour hour and a half and remembering to thaw meat out because it's still in the freezer you just grab your jar off the shelf pour it in warm it up and it's done <laughs> Absolutely. Huge. I feel like I agree with you in the sense that freezing is the most practical because there's literally nothing that you can't put in the freezer, whether you can just put it straight in the freezer or you have to blanch it first and then freeze it. I feel like it ends up being a very accessible way to preserve foods because we all have freezers and, you know, extra freezer space and this or that or whatever. And all you really need is freezer bags. But when it comes to long-term practicality, I agree with you that canning is probably, probably the best place to get started. And a lot of people already know how to freeze anyway. So you can just automatically check that one off your list anyways and like go on to the next thing, canning, you know? So I do like, yeah, that's, I agree with you. Freezing is easiest, but canning is the most practical. I would say it, it depends on where your confidence level is. If you're still trying to get out of the grocery store and you're still not like too sure about temperatures and the pressure canner is just intimidating, you know, maybe you do a couple of jellies, but I would say do something that, that will help you build confidence towards the next one. So maybe you do you water bath, some jellies that you made yourself, or, you know, you buy your fruit in bulk and then make jelly and then, you know, uh, kind of work through canning that way but if you do if you are one of those people that shop in the center aisle still in the grocery store and a lot of your stuff is pre-made or you know with preservatives and all of that stuff and kind of comes in a box i think that and i know we just talked about it but you can stick that stuff in mylar bags and you can start to save that stuff for the for a longer term period so it really in my opinion depends on where you are in your self-sufficiency journey and how comfortable you are you know, working with the different tools. Um, but then, you know, just to uh, all of that to say that, you know, eventually try and check every single one of them off your box. I mean, there are age old uh, ones that we didn't even talk about here, you know, um, that people used to do back in like the 17, 1800s, you know, salting, salt pork, salt fish, that kind of stuff that some people still do, but you know, your confidence is just not there yet. And you might not want the salt content, but it's a uh, salting, smoking, uh -huh. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, so it's confident. You can literally mylar bag almost any dried good. You know, noodles, 
rice. A lot of times I think of mylar bagging and along the lines of prepping. So lentils, beans, rice, flour, those kind of end of the world staple necessities that everybody feels like they need to have in disgusting quantities or abnormal quantities, (laughs) but you can still do stovetop stuffing mix and noodles and, you know, your, your rice packs and the rice aroni and all of those things we all know they're yeah, super high in sodium, not the best, like not the things that we're all necessarily wanting to like proudly reach for, but all realistically have to have in our cupboards Mm -hmm. to some capacity. But those are the kinds of things that are so easy to throw in mylar bags you know, to have stored away. And you can absolutely mylar bag any dried good. Well, before I met y'all, I, full disclosure, full transparency, Mm -hmm. bought spam because I was like, if I can't save my meat, because I don't know how to can meat, I just learned, just learned how to do it. You know, I bought spam and canned pot roast from Costco. Yes. Okay. So I wish those people could see my face. It's so gross. (laughs) I'm from Minnesota and that's where spam came from. And I don't even eat spam. (laughs) Hey, you can get spam sushi in in, um, Hawaii and it is delicious. So (laughs) fried spam. I can do spam sparingly, like in like breakfast burritos. If you don't have like sausage or whatever, <laughs> put some eggs, some pepper, some onions. <laughs> no. I mean, if you had, I, I do have See? some in the pantry. And if we had yep. to, yep. we would have it, so, you know, it's a variety. And that's another thing with like storing things, keep a variety or keep like the next, the next of whatever it is. So like if you're stocking flour, maybe try wheat berries and then i mean you're gonna have to have a grinder to grind them but they have a longer shelf life but <laughs> yeah yeah that could work too yeah. but yeah and then another thing that you could do in the mylar bags is things that aren't necessarily con- well they are consumable but not digesting <laughs> consumable oh, yeah. so like matches fire starters stuff like that to like protect them that's um, a great yeah, i'm going bad Protecting is a huge thing because they're, they're watertight. And so if they're, you know, barring some, it will, especially Brenna coming from, you know, from her, especially with Brenna having her background, you know, be in Florida with hurricanes and all that stuff, having things watertight is huge. And like, even for us here in the Midwest, we've had issues with flooding in our basement twice. And, um, I do keep a lot of our food preservation and like canned goods and mylar bags and stuff like that downstairs and knowing that they're watertight is a huge comfort for me but yeah i mean spam spam pot roast like do you if you are limited in the in your knowledge you go to the next best thing sardines is that what's the next best thing i like sardines okay now i pick those out yes i also like oh my gosh the squid and ink like the calamari and ink that you can get oh girl i eat escargot okay look i'm from florida i get frogs i oh okay I like seafood, but canned squid ink is like beyond a level oh, of comfort for me. It's so good. Well, it's not just the ink. The squid is in the ink. It's just the whole thing. It did, that didn't make it any better. <laughs> so you eat. Yeah, you can find them. They're like in, they're next to the sardines. 20,000 leagues under the sea. 
<laughs> I eat those. I eat the ones, the clams. They have the clams that come in the same way on a piece of French bread with some butter. Oh, so good. <laughs> My husband could never eat with you. I eat everything, literally. <laughs> Oh my lord. I'm dying. I am literally deceased. I will live through anything because I will eat just about anything. Probably not rat. I don't know that I could eat rat. The line has been drawn at rat. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we like hit on while we were talking about canning and preserving and even just prepping, I know we didn't necessarily go into this podcast episode planning to talk about and have a conversation around prepping, but it's interesting to see how these that conversation evolved and how they do really go hand in hand. But I wanted to make sure that I hit on our website. So the homesteadconnection.com has a resource tab at the top of the web page when you open it up. We have dozens and dozens and dozens bringing on like hundreds of free resources on our website, thehomesteadconnection.com. And uh, several of the categories that we have are canning, freezing, freeze drying, dehydrating, and prepping. And the resources on the resource page on our website, the majority of them are free. We have a couple here and there that are like Amazon links to books that we have all love and use, but the vast majority of what's over there is free and it's stuff to help you know how much to preserve per person and um, things like common lists of things of to, to start with when it comes to prepping or how to water bath can, how to pressure can, how to pressure can meat, like 101 to dehydrating and freezing, the process of blanching, all of those things are over there. So I know there's so much that we talk about and think about when it comes to like canning and preserving and stuff, but there's way more resources over there too, if you're interested in diving into anything else. And if you are listening to this podcast, the week that it airs, you have the next seven days to have free access on our website in the connection place to the canning and preserving discussion board. So hop over there, ask your questions, read what's already in there. Um, leave a comment for recommendations or just ask a question. Like if you're new to canning or canning at all or preserving or prepping or anything, that's a really good place to ask a question to see what we're doing. Um, We're just excited to have that open and have it be a place where we can all just convene and, and collectively talk about this podcast or where you guys are all currently at in your journeys with canning and preserving in this year's harvest and stuff. Yeah, even if you have like questions around the um, uh, like any of the resources too, I think it would be really a great time to go into that canning, you know, um, chat area and kind of talk about that. If you have any questions or issues or trying to find something, it's a good yeah. place. To go. And I'll have a post up there with links to some of our favorite websites too. There's so much on the resource page, but if you're looking for kind of our top five to ten links and resources, I'll have those pinned over there too for quick and easy access. Oh, brilliant. And don't forget, guys, this is our 10th podcast episode, which to us feels like a very big deal. And if you're listening to this podcast episode live, make sure you head on over to our Instagram page and participate in our 10th episode giveaway that's happening over there. Woohoo! I can't believe we've done 10 of these. I still remember when I was like, I don't know how to talk on. I don't know. (laughs) 
it's interesting to hear how things have grown and changed over the last 10 weeks. And it makes me really excited for the podcast episodes that we have in the future, just to see how much more will grow and how much more the podcast will change. It's just been a really cool process. It has. It's just been a really cool experience. It really has. Yeah. It's been humbling and interesting and I've learned a lot. And I also watch yes. what I say a little bit more now, believe it or not. Like, <laughs> But it can all be edited. Thank God. <laughs> oh, thank God. Yes. I've said some things that I was like, eh, no. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, should we leave the podcast episode off here then? Yeah. yeah. Well, let us know over in the connection place what you guys are doing in terms of canning and preserving right now and participate in that conversation. We'd love to meet and connect with you guys more over there and also over on our Instagram at the Homestead Connection. And until next time. Bye. Bye.